gifted a large bag of corn. And you see, it only looks like about half, but I just saw a graphic the other day that half of a Dorito bag is air anyway. So this is basically a full bag, and I appreciate that. Now, I know this has never happened in a congregation the caliber of yours. But some people at a one o'clock service have been known to, well, here's what I was told by an elder friend of mine. I was up for the one o'clock service and he said, hey, you know, we got the one o'clock service coming on. Uh, I just want you to know that the way that I listen best is with my eyes closed. That's what he said. You know, when I looked out across that auditorium and there were a lot of people listening real well, it looked like, that particular sermon. So glad to be with you. Let me ask you a, a trick question or just maybe a question. If you have five pelicans and they're sitting on a pier and one of them decides to fly off, how many do you have left? You think four. But a decision to fly off doesn't mean that they have flown off yet. Lots of times we decide to do something. How many of us have decided to read our Bible through in a year and that didn't quite get done? How many of us have decided that we're going to call our friend on their birthday and didn't quite get done? How many of us have made a decision to do something and then it didn't get done? Well, what we understand is that in order to really accomplish anything, you have to make the decision first, and then you have to put that into action. So practice, you got to put it into practice. And what we're going to discuss is some practical aspects of giving that are going to help us understand the mechanics of it. Because, you know, it's, it's kind of like that old boy who said, well, I, I just want to be a, I want to be a great quarterback. And the guy said, well, I've got exactly what you need to be the best quarterback in the NFL. He said, really? Okay, all right. He said, just throw it better than anybody else. Well, that, that doesn't really help me. That doesn't get me to where I want to go. We need some steps. We need some practical application, okay? So that's what we're going to do for this lesson. We're going to look at some practical things. Okay, let's say you've decided you want to be a generous, cheerful giver. What would that look like in practice? Here's what it looks like. Start, start with it. Whenever you get any money, you ask the question First, what am I giving to God? That's the first question you ask. You don't say I'm writing a check for my house. You don't say I'm going to make my car payment. You don't say we're going to save up for our... You say you don't say, hey, take it out of my check for retirement. The first thing before retirement, before your house, before everything. First, how much am I giving to God? Now, that's scriptural. You understand that. We looked at it just briefly, although we might not have focused on it there in our Sunday sermon session, right there, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. As you look in the Old Testament, the Bible repeatedly told the Israelites to give to God first or of their first fruits. Now, you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek ye... Well, you know, I mean, you gotta, you got to really sometimes unpack that particular song because if you're not careful... It'll be like that little boy who had been singing the song all his life. And somebody said, well, who wants to lead a song? And the little boy said, well, I want us to sing a song. And they said, well, which song do you want to sing? He said, the key song. And they said, the, the key song. He said, yeah, the C key song. They said, what do you, you know, C key first. Well, it's not necessarily a, a key song. It's seek ye first. It's a little old King James, but first seek the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting about that is, do you remember what the context of that is? 
The context right before that passage is on physical things that the people were worried about. And they said, Jesus said to them in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be worried about clothing because Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed as one of the lilies of the valley. Don't be worried about food because your life is much more than food. So he gets done with this discussion on physical blessings, food and clothing, riches and things of that nature. And then he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then all these things will be added to you. What was all these things? What are the things he's talking about in that particular context? Clothes and food and all the rest of that stuff. Now, I think that probably the greatest example or illustration I've seen of this principle is in 1 Kings. Flip with me to 1 Kings chapter 17, I believe. 1 Kings chapter 17. Now, here's what's interesting about this story. Really fascinating discussion of prayer. The Bible says over in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Now, here's the context. The Israelites have started worshiping Baal. Baal was supposed to be the god of fertility and the god of crops and the god of financial prosperity. And Elijah said, Baal is not the god of financial prosperity. God is. And his fellow Israelites are saying, uh-uh, we're sacrificing to Baal, and Baal is the one who's in charge. And Elijah said, no, he's not. In fact, I'm going to prove to you he's not. So Elijah prays to God that it won't rain for three and a half years. And it does not rain at all. Now, I think it's interesting, and another study for another time, that Elijah prayed for a situation that would put him into serious hardship, but was spiritually best for the nation of Israel. And sometimes in our prayers, instead of thinking what will be the physically prosperous thing for us, what would... Sometimes it might be that we need to be praying for something that would put us under hardship. It would be spiritually best for other people in our lives. But like I said, that's something else. So he has now gone through quite some time of this three and a half years and he was getting taken care of by the ravens in this little creek and now that creek is dried up and the Lord sends him to Zarephath. And there's a widow up there and he's interacting with this widow as a messenger of God. And he gets up there to the widow so he arose and went to Zarephath, verse 10 of 17. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. How much do you think a little water in a cup was selling for at that time? Hadn't rained anywhere for three and a half years. I mean, I was down in Texas doing a seminar, uh, I was probably 10 years ago, and they had planted fields and fields of corn that were not irrigated. They grew to knee high and they were solid brown. It hadn't rained down there in a month. I think it was actually six weeks, about a month and a half. Every single one of their fields of hundreds of hundreds of acres was completely ruined. Now they thought next year would be better. What if they did that one year, every one of them burns to the ground. Next year, every one of them is totally burnt to where it can't grow. Next year, you might as well not even plant for three years because there's no water. I don't know if you guys are having this problem, but all over the nation, there's actually a water shortage. Like you don't even have enough water to water your lawn or to do price of water is going up. Okay, it's rained a lot in the United States of America and still you have a water shortage. What if it hadn't rained anywhere for three and a half years in the United States of America? You think there'd be some issues? Okay, and a glass of water would be something that, a glass of drinkable water, potable water, it'd be something. So he says to the lady, hey, will you just give me a drink of water? Just, just you know, just incidentally, just bring me one of the most valuable things you got in your house. And 
This good woman says, okay. So in my mind, I envision that she turns to walk off and is going to get him some water. And then he says this. Verse 11. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. He says, oh, by the way, if you don't mind bringing me lunch with that. Okay, the water was something. But you're going to ask me for food now? Then here's what the text says. I, I envision her. She was going to get the water and her shoulders just, just slumping. And she turns back around to the messenger of God and says this. As the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She says, I mean, I almost see her like just, okay. Let me explain this to you. I don't have any bread. I've got one handful of flour. I can hold it all in my hand. The text as I understand it says, I'm picking up a couple sticks. You know, like she's trying to say, about two is all I'm going to need to make a fire big enough to cook this little piece of bread that I've got. And my son and I are going to share one little piece of bread. And the fact of the matter is, neither one of us is going to get full and it's the last meal we'll ever have. We have no more resources. Now, it's at that point, people who misunderstand giving say, whew, well, the Lord would never ask that woman for anything. You know, lots of times I'll be preaching on something like giving or be preaching on giving a stewardship. They'll say, well, you just don't understand. I mean, right now, every year I go in debt. I've got to get out of debt before I start giving generously. No, no. To say that the Lord would not ask a woman like that to give is totally misunderstanding what God's trying to do with giving because it's that mindset of, oh, you're going to take something from that woman. Okay, giving has never been you take something from someone. Now that's what people who misunderstand it think is happening. So in, in our case, I have had many a person who I've, I've, I've taught on giving. They said, well, you just don't understand. We've got little widows in our congregation that they just couldn't give at least 10% of their income. Okay, you totally misunderstand. What do you mean they couldn't? This woman, do you have anybody in your congregation that is so poor that they believe that a can of beans in their pantry is the last meal they will ever eat? Nobody. Okay, so you've got a widow that from our perspective, we would say, oh, is that all you got? Well, then just hang on to that. You just keep it. It's not what God's trying to do with giving. Elijah then says, okay, I hear you. But give me a piece of bread first. You know, you look at that and just think, what a callous, selfish, who in the world would ask for some of this woman's... He said, and as a representative of God, you're given to me first, and your flour will not run out and your oil will not run dry for the rest of this famine. I'm not trying to take anything from you. I'm trying to help you understand the principle of giving. Now, what if she said, I don't believe that. I do not believe you're trying to help me. I think you're trying to get some of the little bit that I've got. What if she had said no? What would have happened to her and her son? They would be dead. Because God says, you have to test me. I, I'm going to lay it out there for you. I'm going to show you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you more blessings than you've ever had. But you have to do it. And so, the faith of this woman, she said, okay, well, 
This is all I've got, and it looks like I'm going to starve to death, but God's representative says I'm not. And so here. And for the rest of the famine, her oil did not run dry, her flour did not run out, and she was one of the few people in the area that actually lived because she gave to God out of her poverty first because God's always just trying to use giving as an opportunity to give you more. More of everything that you want that's good. More emotional prosperity. More financial prosperity. More spiritual prosperity. It's a door that opens up things for you and not something that takes away from you. And so, first question you ask. You get some Christmas money. Oh, Kyle, that's meddling. Well, you mean somebody gives me $100 for Christmas. My, my mom gives me my annual $100 for Christmas. What's the first question you ask? How much is it going to God? Boss gives you a raise. Oh, hey, we've been wanting to save $3,000 for, for a trip. Boss just gave us a raise for $3,000. No, what's the first question you ask? First question, how much is going to God? That's the first question. All right, so if you're practically going to give like God wants you to, anytime you get any amount of money whatsoever, first question, how much is going to God? Okay, question number two. When you say how much is going to God, it always is a percentage. Always means a percent. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We briefly dealt with this, but... We'll look at it again just to give us a, a practical recipe for giving. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, saints, as I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do also this for all the churches. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there'll be, there'll be no collections when I come. So, as you prosper, and the Israelites would have absolutely understood this, means a percentage of what comes into you. If you make $1,000, you're going to give to God more than if you make $100. Make $100, you're going to give to God more than if you make 10 That's what the principle of as you prospered means. And in the Old Testament, they understood it. It was you know, pointed out to them, if you have 10 cows, then you take one of those 10. It was, it was easy to understand. So as you prosper means a percentage. Now, here's something else that is important along these lines. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is probably one of the more well-known passages on giving. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But this I say, he who sows sparingly, verse 6, will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Now that's our next principle. First question, how much is God getting from any dime that comes to me. Second question, it's got to be as I've prospered. Third thing, it's as you've purposed in your heart. Now, what does purpose in your heart mean? Not hard to understand. It means a decision that you've made before you get into the situation. Probably the most famous biblical example of this is Daniel being carried off into that Babylonian pagan culture. And Daniel had purposed in his heart that he would and would not do some things. And one of the things Daniel purposed in his heart was that he wasn't going to eat unclean food regardless of what anybody said. And so when they offered him unclean food, he said no. And the Bible says because Daniel had purposed in his heart that he would not do this. You know, when you teach your kids about dating and different things, you say, hey, the time to make a decision about this stuff is not in the middle of the moment. The time to make a decision about this stuff is before you ever go on a date. What 
will be the protocol for how I behave on this day. You don't decide at that moment. You've already made the decision. You purpose in your heart. You know, I think a lot of do this, a lot of us do this. Hey, your kids don't ask if you're going to church on Sunday, do they? Why don't your kids ask, hey, are we going to church this Sunday morning? Because you've purposed in your heart that you're going to worship the Lord on Sunday. Your kids know it's a decision you've already made. You don't make that decision every Sunday morning when you wake up. It's something you've decided. So here's how this looks. You get $1,000. You ask the first question, how much is going to God? Next question, it's got to be a percentage. Third question, what percentage have I decided is going to God before the money ever comes to me? That's purposing in your heart. So if you say, okay, well, I know the children of Israel were giving at least 10%, and I know in the New Testament, never somebody commended for giving less than that. So I'm going to start at 10%. So here's how that looks. I get $1,000. How much is going to God? 10% of $1,000. Now, don't misunderstand me to, to say that I'm preaching the tithe. That's not what I'm, I'm preaching at all. Because I believe that a person could be given 10% and not be a scriptural giver. I believe the rich young ruler was given 10%. He was given a tithe and was not a scriptural, liberal, generous giver. I'm not saying that 10% is, is what the Bible tells you to give. I think 10% is the floor. It's where you start. And as you grow in that, I think many people will be giving 15, 20, 30. But I mean, I knew an elder down in, where was he, over in California that I got there and we were talking about giving and how fun and exciting it was. And he said, oh yeah, he said years and years ago, somebody came and, and talked to us about giving and I found it to be one of the most exciting things ever. He said, and my wife and I determined that we would not, that, that we would try to give more each year. He said, we started right here and we would give it a, at least half a percent or a percent more. And he said, that was 50 years ago. Well, I didn't know exactly what percentage of it they were giving, but it would have been way up there and he was giving, he was increasing his percentage every year. Now, I think what you, you find out is people who are giving and really enjoying and having fun realize, hey, I could do this even more next year. I can do this even more next year. But what's being said here is when you get any amount of money, you ask, how much am I giving to God first? You understand that as a percentage because as you prospered, you then recognize that you decide up front what percentage that's going to be. So you're not making a decision about money. You're just doing calculation. Now here's why I think God told you to do this. Because $10,000 sounds like a whole lot more than a hundred, And when you're oh, not as financially prosperous maybe as some people, whatever, and you're giving $100. Well, 100 doesn't seem like that much, but then when you're given the same percentage because you're making a lot more in the future, when you have $10,000 that you're given, that seems like a lot. And I think this is the reason why people who make $75,000 or more, only 1% of them actually give 10% because they feel like they're giving God a lot of money. And so I think what God is trying to tell you is, okay, look, this is not a calculation. I mean, this is, this is not a decision. When I give you some money, you've already decided I'm going to give it to God first. You already know it's a percentage. You've already determined the percent. So when you get any money, you just calculate. If you said it's 15% and you make $1,000, you just give $150. It's calculation. That way, you're not tempted to say, well, $150 is quite a bit of money. See how that's playing out? Now, give you some uh, motivation behind this. I want you to look in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Oh, I think our Doritos are actually going to make another appearance in this discussion. Luke chapter 6. Here's what God has always been trying to do for you. 
there is a spiritual reality that you've got to understand is at work here. And if you don't understand the spiritual reality, you'll think God can do it differently, but He's chosen this way to do it. This is how it works. It's a reality. It doesn't, it's, just, it's like gravity. You know, it doesn't matter whether you like gravity, whether you agree with gravity, whether you feel like it's your friend or not. Gravity is going to work regardless of whether you understand it or like it. If you step off a 20-story building and you thought that was a good idea at some point, that doesn't matter what you think about it. And nobody's going to be able to adjust it for you. You stepped off a 20-story building and you're going to fall to the ground. That's just gravity. There is a spiritual law of stewardship that is at play that God uses in His dealings with you. And here it is. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give... And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your bosom. Bosom, For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now that's the spiritual reality of giving. God says, okay, I'm going to use the same measure that you use. Now let me paint you the picture. Here's what's going on in this particular verse. There is a grain vendor sitting on a dusty road in a marketplace in first century Israel. And that grain vendor is God. And God is sitting there at His vending market position, and He's got an unlimited supply of grain in the back. And you walk up to God and say, I would like some grain. And He says to you, Give me the measure that you have been using to give to me and good causes. People who need it. You give me the measure. So let's say in my mind I have something like a, a, about something about the size of a, a soup can. Now let's get something bigger. Maybe one of those big coffee cans. All right. So you say, okay, this is the measure that I've been using to give to other people. He says, okay, give it to me. So you give it to him and you think, well, this, I mean, how's this going to work? If it's the same measure I've been using, then I'm just going to get what you, what I've been given back. It's going to even swap. He said, well, hold on just a second. You give him the coffee can and he scoops it up to where it's absolutely full, just like you have. It's what you've been doing. But what does he do next? Good measure pressed down. Okay, when he scoops it up to absolutely full, he then starts smushing it down into the can. Now, when I was growing up, I used to do a lot of landscaping and yard work and stuff. And I remember in the fall, we would have a big business of raking leaves all over the place. And we'd get those big black trash bags that were specifically for this really big, large bags. And we'd rake up a big pile of leaves and we'd put them there in the bag and it would look full. But of course, you knew one huge armful of leaves wasn't going to fill the bag. And then you'd get another one, you'd shove it down in there, another one, shove it down in there. If you got real creative, you stood on the back of your 1986 and a half Nissan hardbody two-wheel drive and jumped off of it into the bag that you were trying to smush stuff in and then bounced up and down on it. Okay, you smush it down. Now you've given God this can that He filled it up just like you did, but now He smushed it down. You think God's got enough force to smush it down to where it's a considerable distance now from the top? Okay, absolutely. So he smushed it down. 
You know, it's kind of like taking a, in, in my mind, it's kind of like taking a, a bag of coffee beans. What happens when you grind those coffee beans as far as the volume of what they take up goes? I mean, it, so God has smushed it down. Okay, what's next? Next is, oh, that's what, well, that is where my Doritos come in. I mean, really, let's say you took the Doritos. You opened it, it's a bag about half full, and you decide, okay, we're going to smush these Doritos down. Now, if you're like me, you don't want to do that. In fact, you're very careful with the bag because you like whole chips that are the whole. But, but what if you did just decide you were going to smush this down? Would I have quite a bit more volume in this bag to put stuff in it? That, that's what you're looking at. You smush it down. And then here's what the text says. He presses it down, shaken together. You ever poured a, a bag of flour in one of those bins that's got the little pop top that, you, that is the sealed top? You press the little button and it pops up. Okay, you can pour it in there, but you've got like a, oh, I don't know, you got an inch or whatever left in that flour bag and it's not fitting in the thing. So what do you do with that container? You just rattle it around and shake it around and that settles all the air out of it and it goes down further. Okay, so now here's what God said. He took the can that you're given, He smushes it down, then fills it back up. Then He shakes it so it all goes down. And then notice what else He does. And running over will be put into your bosom. So he takes what you got, smashes it down, shakes it, pours it back up. And he says, now, you know, this is quite a bit more than you've been given. And you say, yeah. He says, okay. So then, now, if you were like me, uh, when you learned to cook in preschool, because that's where I learned much of my culinary distinctive art, uh, we were taught, look, when you get a cup of something, you take a a butter knife and you run it across the top so that you get an exact cup. If you haven't learned that yet, now you know. I mean, it's an old cook secret that many of us have kept hidden away for years, but that's how you do it. Okay, so, so somebody comes and says, I want a cup, I want a, a coffee can and stuff. So you measure, and then just to make sure that you give them exactly a coffee can and no more, no let you to wipe it right off the top, right? God says, okay, so I've got this from you. I've smushed it down. I've shaken it together. Now the Bible says he pours it on top and it's running over off the top of the can. It's like a little pyramid where it's, it's just sliding all the time. And he says, okay, now here, here you go. And he passes you a, a coffee can that's been smushed and shaken and now grain's all pouring out of it and it's way more than you gain. But what's the medium he's using to pass it back to you? What you gave. It's always in some proportion to what you gave. Your happiness, your spiritual blessings, your financial blessings will always be in some proportion to what you use to give. And a lot of us might be, and I hope nobody in here, but based on the stats, a lot of people in the world say, God, truckload blessings, just dump them on me. And he says, okay, give me the measure that you're using to give. And boy, when you pull out that little teaspoon and you pass it to God and you're asking God for truckload blessings and you're giving with a teaspoon, you start really seeing the disparity in what you're trying to ask God to do. Because it's a law of the spiritual world that you reap what you sow. And that's just a fact. Now you reap more than you sow. You reap after you sow. You reap the same kind that you sow. You always reap more but it's in proportion to what you do so. If you want a big crop, you plant more seed. And that's the principle. So the motivation behind a proper practical aspect of giving, of asking 
How much am I giving to God first? Making sure it is a percentage, deciding that percentage up front, is that God will always give to you in certain proportion based on how you give. Now, the next aspect of this, and let's get real serious about this one. Does God need your stuff? Has God ever needed your stuff? Okay, do you think God can't get what God wants done without the hundred bucks you put in the plate this morning? Could God, if he knew of where there was a generous liberal giver down in Texas, make sure that that person found a massive load of oil on their property and immediately have multiplied more hundreds of millions of dollars in the Lord's work to get what he wants done? Does he need your stuff? It's not like God's trying to take your stuff. That's what he said over in Psalm 50. He said, look, if I were hungry, you'd be the last person I'd talk to about helping me out. Because I own everything. I don't need your stuff. Well, so why does he ask you to give it? I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. And you're going to, to figure out why he asked you to give it. Philippians chapter 4. This is Paul talking to the Philippian church who was his number one supporting financial supporting congregation. The uh, Bible says that when he went in there, started the congregation, they gave money to him once and then again when he was in moving out of this particular area, they supported him financially and they heard he was doing bad and so they sent a guy by the name of Paphroditus to take a financial gift to him to support his ministry. And he said, hey, you know, this is great. I don't need it because I can eat beans or I can eat steak. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content, whether I, I'm abounding or whether I am doing terrible, I'm, I'm doing fine, but I'm glad you sent it. Well, Paul, why are you glad the Philippian church sent this money to support his ministry? Notice what the text says. Verse 18, indeed, no, no, 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all in abound. I'm full having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Why is Paul glad they sent him something? He said, it's, it's not that I need your money. I'm excited for you that you got to be a part of this for the fruit that abounds to your account. Listen, God's never asked you for money because He needs your stuff. You know, it's kind of like the mom when the little four-year-old comes in the kitchen, mom's about to bake some cookies, and the little four-year-old girl says, Mom, can I help you bake cookies? Do you know why you let four-year-olds help you bake cookie? Well, I mean, it's because the process is going to be so clean-cut and, and perfectly executed that the cookies are going to come out so much better because four-year-olds are great at making sure that the efficiency of cookie baking is kept perfectly in order with the recipe. That's why you let four-year-olds help you because the cookies are turning out better, isn't it? No, you see, but a four-year-old, they come in and they ask their mom if she's going to help, let them help make cookies. And she says, yes. I mean, you know what, four-year-olds, uh, did you know that those two sticks of butter that are going in these cookies, they've been sitting out for a little while. And you understand that butter has been well-designed 
so that you can grab one side of the paper of the butter and with just a little bit of force, make that now softened stick of butter roll perfectly into the mixing bowl that you've got. Four-year-olds don't know that. In fact, when they grab it and start smushing it, they think, oh, this feels great. And so they smush it a little bit. And then they get a little on their hands and they think, I wonder what butter tastes like. So now you've got smushed softened butter that you got to try to scrape off. A lot of it doesn't quite make it into the pan and into the mixing bowl. And now your little four-year-old's got slimy little butter fingers. And she's so excited. She's like, oh, this is fun. We're doing great, aren't we, Mom? Y'all, we're doing great. Okay, now it's time for the sugar. You do the egg breaking yourself. You tell her she can learn that later. But you go for the sugar. Now, here's what you know. What you know is that you don't know where you learned this. In fact, you're not even sure you ever, ever consciously made the decision. But what you know is that when you scoop up sugar, the easiest thing to do on the lip of the mixing bowl is to put the sugar right on the lip of it and just turn it. That's all you have to do. Just turn. It's a, it's a half turn. Four-year-olds don't know that. They think large, slow arcs are the greatest pouring method device. So, boy, they scoop that sugar and they... Half of it goes on the floor. Now, how much sugar you got? You don't know how much sugar is on there now. And also, now they got the slimy butterfinger and they stick it in there. And then, of course, they want to mess with the dough. You let this four-year-old help you throughout the whole process. Why? Because you need a four-year-old's help making cookies? Well, you, they, they can't even get butter in the thing. But then when those cookies come out, and that little daughter gets to scrape off those cookies and run them into the living room and say to her dad, Daddy, look what me and Mom made you. And she gets to be a part of the process and feel like she has benefited the family, and feel like she is just as important as mom in the cookie making? That's why you let a four-year-old help. You don't need her to help. You want her to be a part of it. Do you know God's never needed your money? Look, if there's a Bible that He wants to get to somebody and that Bible costs 10 bucks and He sends somebody here to ask you for that 10 bucks and you don't give it to Him, He's going to find somewhere to get that 10 bucks and send it to Him. You know how I know that? Mordecai said to Esther, it could be that you were put here for such a time as this and if you stand up, you could save all of Israel. But if you don't, God will find someone else to do it. But you and your house will suffer the same fate of all the Jews that you're not stepping up to help. He said God's going to get His what He wants done. And He doesn't need your stuff. But guess what? He wants to let you be a part of it. You know, in Augusta, Georgia, there's a golf course that's recognized as the most prestigious golf course in the world. This particular golf course has a very, very limited number of people that are in the club that can actually play on the course because they are members of this particular golf association slash club. Do you know how they determine who gets to stay as a member of this particular prestigious golf course? 
Here's what they do. They don't tell you how much it costs because they don't know every year. Could be more, could be less this year. If you have behaved in a way that they don't think represents the characteristics and qualities of a person that should be a member of this golf club, they don't kick you out. At the end of the year, they divide up all the expenses and they send the members a bill. 50000 100000 whatever it is. If you haven't been behaving in a way that they think is appropriate for one of their members, they just don't send you a bill. They don't let you send them $50,000. They don't let you be a part of what's going on anymore. I just don't think we understand when God says, I'm going to let you be a part of this, that it has nothing whatsoever to do with how much God needs us. It's how much we need Him. And He's just going to let us be a part of it. And so many of us, not just across, so many people who call themselves Christians are looking at these opportunities and saying, well, I don't want to be a part of that. We mean you don't want to be a part. It's not for God's good that He's doing this. God can do it any way He wanted. You need to be a part of it. It's so it will bound to your account. And then finally, we're in, in with this last point. Let's recap what we've got. Number one, when you get any amount of money, you ask the question, how much of this is going to God first? Before anything else, before your house, before your car, before giving it away, before retirement, anything. How much of this is going to God first? Then you recognize that it's as you prospered and it's a percentage. Then you recognize that you make that decision up front. You purpose in your heart, what percentage am I giving to God before you ever get any money? Then you recognize God's not doing this because He needs your stuff. And then you recognize this fact. How you give to someone is a proof of how much you love them. And that's a fact. You don't have to take my word for that. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 8, rather. And you're going to look at this exchange. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but here's what's happening. Paul has told the Corinthians that the Macedonians are given out of their poverty and they're begging Paul to take money to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul had explained that to the Corinthians and the Corinthians said, oh, well, we're in too. And Paul had said, how much are you in for? And they had said a certain amount of money. Now, I don't know how much it was. Well, let's just say 50,000 bucks. So the Corinthian church has said, hey, we'll give 50,000 bucks to the Jerusalem church. Now, don't quote me on 50,000. We don't know the, the amount. But... Paul explains to the Corinthians, he says, hey, I'm going to be bringing some people to pick up that money that you promised, but I'm sending on my messengers before so that you can show them that you got the money so that me and these guys who show up, when we get there, you're not scrambling around to try to collect it. Because remember, you promised you'd give us 50,000 bucks, and if we show up and the 50,000 bucks is not there... I mean, these people who are representatives from Jerusalem are going to be like, well, hey, we were counting on that money. We, we got this grain ordered or whatever, and you hadn't come up with the money that you promised you'd give us. He said, you'll be embarrassed, and I'll be embarrassed. We'll all be embarrassed. And he said, so I'm sending my messengers. Show them the money so that we'll know you, you've got that done. Now, notice what he says here. Verse 23, if anyone inquires about Titus, 
This was his messenger that he was sent in, in verse 23 of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. He's my partner, fellow worker concerning you, or if your brethren are inquired about, they're messengers of the churches of the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our bragging on your behalf. We've been telling churches all over the country that the Corinthians have ended up for however many thousands of dollars and people are really looking at at you as a church, that's a great example of giving. And so I just sent Titus so you can show him the money so everybody will recognize that you're actually doing what you've been doing and God will be glorified. And the fact that you have pledged a certain amount and taken action to give a certain amount proves what? That you love two people, two groups of people. Number one, it proves that you love the church in Jerusalem. And number two, it proves that you love God. Folks, listen to me. You can give without loving. Meaning there are all kinds of reasons you could give. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, though I give my body to be burned and I have not love, it profits me nothing. If I give away everything that I've got, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. You can have a lot of motivations for giving. You can give a large amount of money because you want people to think you're generous like Ananias and Sapphira who lied about it. You can give so that you might be viewed as a person that would be good in a promotion. So you, you can do a lot of things as a motivation for giving. But you cannot say that you love somebody and actually mean it if you are not a generous giver to that person. You understand what I'm saying? You cannot say, I love you and not generously give to that person. Now, you and I understand this completely. Uh, let's say you have a husband and a wife and that husband comes home and he says, babe, I love you. I think you are the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. I'm so excited about our marriage. And she says, well, that's great. She says, you know, I've been at the house and been trying to get everybody's laundry done, but our, our washing machine went out and I'm having to take the clothes to the laundromat and it'd be great if we could just get a new washing machine. And he says, oh yeah, we'll get one. We will absolutely, we'll get one of those. And he goes out and the next day he comes home and says, babe, I love you so much. You're just the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. He said, I bought us a new four-wheeler. And I feel like it's going to be really good. We're going to take it out on hunting land. It's going to make me and the boys a lot easier getting out to the deer that we shoot. And the wife says, oh, okay. Uh, great. And what about that washing machine? Uh, I mean, I went to the laundromat twice to... This week, he, oh yeah, yeah, we're gonna get, to, we're gonna make sure we get that washing machine. We're gonna get it for you. Another month, two months go by. He comes home and he says, "Wow, babe, you'll be real excited what I got us. Got us a boat, and this boat, I mean, it's got a couple good outboard engines on it. I mean, we're gonna be able to get to any fishing spot we want. It's gonna be awesome. Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, last month I've been to the laundromat twenty times and just need to." A washing machine. Oh, well, we're going to get that washing machine. A couple months go by, comes home and says, well, baby, you know, you know, finally, finally went and pulled the trigger on it. Got me a new F-250 truck. I'm so excited about it. going to be able to pull that boat. And he goes on and on and on. Tells his wife he loves her. But in his financial situation does not show him, show her that he loves her he can say he loves her all day long. But you cannot love without giving. Now here's how I know that. 
For God so loved the world that He gave. His only begotten Son. Giving is always a proof of your love. In whatever relationship you're in, especially between you and God. You know, it's kind of like Susie and those little pearls that she found that one day. She and her mom were in Walmart. And there were these little plastic pearls hanging up in the toy section. And she didn't have enough money to get them. And she was begging her mom. She had two bucks. They were five dollars. She said, Mom, please, please help me get these. They're just so... One of those little toys that just, just pulled to her. Just attracted her. And her mom said, Okay, well, we'll get them. And so she buys those little five dollar plastic pearls. And Susie starts wearing them all the time. She wears them to school. She wears them everywhere she goes. She wears them so much that she chips the little white paint off. And the little cream colored plastic is visible underneath. Only time she takes them off is when she takes a bath or she goes to bed. And right when she gets up from bed, she puts those plastic pearls back on. Well, she's sitting, she, she's in the living room. Her dad's sitting in the lazy boy chair there in the living room one day. And he says, he says, Susie, come here. She hops up in his lap and he says, how's school been going? Things going great? He said, Susie, I know this is an odd question, but do you love me? She said, yeah, dad, you know I love you. He said, well, can I have your pearls? She said, Dad, not my pearls. I mean, they're my favorite toy. I'm, I wear them all the time. They're my very favorite of everything. She said, I got a bunch of dolls you can have. She said, he said, okay. Kiss her on the forehead, puts her down. A couple weeks later, he's sitting in the lazy boy. She's got her pearls on. Pulls her up into his lap and talks about the day. And he says, Susie, do you love me? She said, Dad, what kind of question is that? You know I love you. He said, can I have your pearls? She almost starts crying. She can't believe he would even ask for the most precious thing she's got. She said, not my pearls. He said, okay. Well, she's thinking about it and thinking about it. A couple days later, He's in that chair and, and she's got those pearls in her hand and she's white knuckled. She's gripping them so hard. And she climbs up into her dad's lap and she's just crying. Tears coming down her face. And she just said, Dad, you know, I just want you to know I love you more than anything and here's my pearls. Now press pause right there and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And in Luke chapter 16, I want you to look at verse 10 and 11 verses. Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you haven't been faithful in unrighteous riches, who will commit to you your trust, the true riches? Julie brings those little plastic pearls and she gives them to her dad. And she thinks she has just given up the greatest treasure that she's ever had in her little young life. And he reaches down by the side of that chair in that side pocket and he pulls out a flat purple felt-covered box, and he opens it, and inside that box is the most beautiful set of real pearls that Susie has ever seen. 
And he says to her, I was just seeing how long you would hold on to those little fake pearls and wondering when you'd give them to me so I could exchange them for something of real value. You see, that text right there that we just read is God saying, money's just a test for you. It doesn't even have real value. And if you will just give it to me in a generous way, what I'm trying to show you is that I'm going to give you the real thing. And what you're holding on to, thinking that this is the, the great thing that you just can't let go of, is a bunch of plastic that the paint's chipping off of. And I've got real spiritual blessings that I can give to you, but I can't. I can't if you hold on to the fake pearls. All God has ever wanted to do, ever, is bless us. And one of the ways He can bless us the most is if we will partner with Him to generously give to Him and to His causes and people that need it so that He can say, that person loves me. That person is in business with me. That person gets what I'm trying to do on planet Earth. I'm trying to use pieces of paper painted green to bring glory to the name of God in heaven. And they understand it. And I want them to get more of every good thing that I've got so they can show more people how to do it. So the question to you is, do you love God? You know, that's the real question of giving. But it's so much more than just giving money. That happens to be one aspect of what we've been talking about today, but so, so very much more. If you really look at what you need to give God to recognize that you love Him. You know, the rich young ruler, he didn't love God, and it happened to be that he loved money more. He wouldn't repent. He wouldn't Rip the love of money out of his heart. But how many times have we seen it happen to be that someone loved a relationship with somebody else more? Loved a job more? Loved a sinful lifestyle more? Is there anything you love more than God? You see, that's the question for you. And when Peter said, repent and be baptized, that word repent simply means to turn away from something and turn toward God it means if there's something you love more than God, turn around, leave it behind, and move to your Creator. Maybe it's money for you. Maybe it's a sinful lifestyle. Maybe it's an old belief. Is there something you need to lay at the altar of God and say, I'm giving this to you because I love you more? Do you need to respond to the Lord's invitation? Do you need to give up something you've been loving more than God to get right with your Creator? If you do, I hope you will, as we stand and as we sing.